And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and after a brief hiatus, I'm again by, joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-around good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Or maybe that you should be welcoming me back. I was just going to say, Matt, probably the other way around. Yeah, welcome <laughs> back. Um, and for listeners wondering what uh, hiatus means, it means that Matt forgot to upload the interviews. Um, and so we didn't quite get uh, our pre-packaged pro, um, product uh, out onto the streets in time. So uh, apologies for that. Yeah, mate, oh, sorry, that was my um, – when you're travelling, getting ready, and then uh, uh, it was a very, very hectic couple of weeks, uh, both in and out of uh, internet um, uh, zones. So yeah, it was a little bit hard to to do it. So I'm sorry, listeners, for the uh, for for the, for the break. We uh, did have the content, and you're about to hear some of that content. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm back, and we're back, and uh, let's get this show on the road. Yeah, and fairly serendipitous, I guess, that we're um, we're talking well Oktoberfest um, with you. You know, at this time of the year, given that you've just come back from Oktoberfest in time for Oktoberfest. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Oktoberfest celebrations in Australia, which tend to take place in October, um, which of itself is a little bit interesting. Well, actually, it's, it's probably not I- interesting because Oktoberfest was originally celebrated in October in Germany, but um, the weather in October is very iffy. So once it became a a big thing, they moved it forward a couple of weeks um, to get the uh, best of the uh, you know late um, summer weather. Um, it still it still does leak into October. It starts around September the nineteenth or the third week of September, doesn't it? But it, it leaks into October, and it leaks in. I think yeah, finishes up the in the first week of October. Um, and then and then as we're recording this, of course, we're in we're bookending um, bookended by uh, Brisbane Oktoberfest, which started last weekend and com- and finishes this weekend. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was uh, I wasn't sure whether to give that a plug uh, on on the podcast, but yeah, no, I'm and I'm actually the beer ambassador for Brisbane Oktoberfest, so I do a bit of work for them up here. Um, which was one of the things that really gave me the incentive to go to Oktoberfest in Germany this year because the Brisbane Oktoberfest is it, it, it's, it's a huge, it's a very big um, uh, celebration of the, the German Oktoberfest. It's held in a big tent. The family that runs it uh, are German and very proud and they wanted to create something that was very, very authentic Um and I went over just to sort of compare them. And, uh, yeah, look, they do a really good job. So this weekend, if you are in Brisbane, it's certainly well well worth, you know, it's probably not going to appear to appeal to people who are beer festival goers who, who like to go and try a million different beers. But if you like good beer um, and great fun and a really good atmosphere, it's well worth getting along to. Yeah, and, well, that's probably as good a time as any for you to um... – File your international report. <laughs> We're now across to our international correspondent, Matt Kierkegaard. Matt, well, how it, was Oktoberfest? Oh, mate, I, I could talk and talk and talk for hours about it. Um, Oktoberfest. But, but let's all, not. Let, but let's, let's not. Let's, let's aim for a minute and a half. Um, I, I, look, I, I guess the first thing I'll say is the the thing I just said about they moved it forward because of the weather. Um, I could really see why. I landed in Munich and it was just two days of absolutely glorious. 26, 27 degree days, um, and all of the uh, locals I was talking to said, "Oh, well, you know, you're here for the good weather because winter starts on Friday." And I thought, coming from Australia, that's a very odd concept. Um, but there was a front moving in uh, just in time for the launch of Oktoberfest, and apparently, that's you know, once that happens, that is the end of the good weather. It's just like a curtain coming down. Um, 
and cue the first day of Oktoberfest, the Anzapfen ceremony, and it was wet and dreary and cool um, outside, but inside the tents it was just amazing. Just yeah, I'd, it really is something to um, revere in, in a lot of ways. On, on one level, I can see why backpackers go along, and it is just a beer festival um, because you sit there, you're very tightly packed, and there is a lot of beer flowing. Um, I was lucky enough to be in one of the more traditional tents, um, the uh, Hackershaw tent um, that is, it has the, this is Bavarian heaven um, across the roof. It's got a, a heaven motif. Um, and yeah, look, Prof, I was actually struck by how slowly the Germans drink their beer. They, when they're sitting there, there's a lot of fun, there is a lot of noise, there's a lot of laughter, but the beer goes down fairly slowly and I had to put the brakes on because I was drinking the way that I would, uh, you know, the, the beer constantly in hand, constantly raised to the lips and realised that I was outpacing everybody uh, quite dramatically. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they, 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 when they talk about a culture around drinking, it's not just a chug a culture. Yeah, and are we talking, um, you know, the your smaller serving size is a, is a stein? Or, or are there are there oh, um, no, sensible these, serving sizes available? No, these are the big boys. The, yeah, the, the, there's only one size. It's it, it's the leader stein. That said, um, because you've got the the, the barmaids or the the, the, the glass girls um, carrying the, the these huge steins, most of them um, and through very densely packed crowds. Uh, you know, most of them are probably at best three quarters full and one quarter foam. So you're not getting the full liter um, for your money. Um, but it is a big serve of beer, um, and all of the Oktoberfest beers are over six percent. Um, even though they're pale lagers these days, um, they're they're specially brewed for Oktoberfest and are quite big. And uh, it was quite interesting from what I could make out, not speaking German, but using Google Translator to uh, do my best to read the front pages of the newspaper. There was quite a furor, um, or quite a discussion, or the the topic du jour was the serving of Rattlers um, at Oktoberfest and whether that was against the purity of the of the event um, but yeah uh, I, would, I would have thought everyone gets the same you know the the same offering if you want to adulterate it with you know lemon cordial then go for it but you know be aware that you 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 might be you know laughed off the Oktoberfest grounds in the same way as somebody you know asking for a pony of beer might unfairly laughed off the grounds I'd probably say prof you know I think that if somebody wants to sit there and have a full stein and you know have a shandy essentially um you know all power to them um it's it's funny there was actually I wrote an article for that was in in the age in the Sydney Morning Herald um and it was quite similar to one that ran on the crafty pint um that was very good looking at the history and the traditions of Oktoberfest there was just one line in the uh, crafty pint article that I sort of took issue with a little bit where it wasn't this isn't verbatim but it talked about how once upon a time the dunkels or the darker beers were the staple for Oktoberfest uh going back to Joseph Siedlmeyer and the, the late 1800s which is very very true but then there was a um he said something uh, along the lines of, but, you know, dumbing it down or insinuating that modern pale lagers are, are what's consumed now that essentially has dumbed down the beer drinking in Oktoberfest. So I thought, yeah, that's a little bit harsh because 
you know, once upon a time, porters were the, the beers that everybody drank. But then, well, because we, we couldn't brew anything paler. Yeah, and, and it was the Pilsner or Kel, you know, or Pilsner um, was the, the, the beer that really ignited pale lagers. And it was the same time that we had, you know, clear glass that yeah bohemian crystal yeah and, the, the, the showcase and, and, and increased transport and then the industrial revolution and you know marketing and all that sort of thing that came with that yeah yeah and I th- there is something of a of a mindset that just because the beer has changed um and maybe a little bit less full flavored that that is a dumbing down um you know it, which I think misses the point of what Oktoberfest is, and you know, and, and also that if people, if they're the beers that people want to drink, there's no point serving these other beers. So it's not necessarily the brewers dumbing it down. They found that these beers are more popular, and you know, fashions change and tastes change, and uh, you know, none of us are sitting there ordering, you know, dense rye bread from our uh, you know local bakeries. That doesn't mean that bread has necessarily been dumbed down. You can still have a wonderful light white sourdough. Um, that provides pleasure without being, you know, quite as chewy. Um, yeah, and, and whilst uh, Oktoberfest in and of itself is is dripping with heritage and tradition, it does reflect that, um, you know, tastes and availability, um, you know, shift and change to, uh, I guess, create the same spirit uh, of the festival, but that the, um, you know, perhaps some of the, you know, there's some fine tuning going on. Yeah, and, and heritage. Which, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. Heritage and history don't mean that you don't change. You're not rooted in the past. You know, you can. No, you can... and I and, and Matt, I can understand how some traditionalists, you know, in all sorts of spheres of human endeavour, when things change, some people will, you know, sort of lament um, the loss of, you know, what they consider to be, you know, the important thing. Sometimes it's just a case of saying, you know, some t- things just change. It doesn't make them better or worse. It just makes them different. And perhaps the best example of that that I had was that I was lucky enough to visit both the um, uh, Weinstefan Brewery and also uh, get to Schlenkler in Bamberg. And, you know, you, you get to go down in these um, stone, these carved out Ancient stone cellars. cellars that are yeah. you know, seven, 800 years old that go back to the time when lagers genuinely were stored through the summer months and they would be packed with ice and you know, there were some really interesting uh, exhibitions I went to in, in, in Germany that sort of showed how this was done. And the brewery is still on the same site and they're still using the same cellars. But, you know, something, Prof, they're not packing them with winter ice. They've got brand new stainless steel um, and refrigeration systems in there and all of these things. And that doesn't mean that you know, they've done that because some you know, some progress is good, some technology is good, and you can still stay true to the traditions without without sort of, you know, using two sticks rubbed together to light a fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's all about, you know, consistency and quality and, um, you know, repeatable results and all that sort of thing. So if you can say, well, you know, we did that in the old days because we had to. But yeah. then again, we also, you know, used to shit in the gutter. We don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So there are some things that we, that I think, you know, it's nice that we've changed. Yeah, yeah. And actually, perhaps the best statement of that, I got to go to um, this beautiful brewery that's at Weltenberg Abbey, which is right on the Danube, and it's this, like, it's this most picturesque brewery, and it's, it's one of those things you see in postcards. 
Um, and I spent the night there and I was speaking to, to the sales guy. Um, it, it is still brewed within the grounds of the Abbey. Um, it's, it's the local, uh, brewery or a very local brewery that comes in and brews for them. But I, because there's only seven monks there, I think one of the monks is still involved in, in the brew house. Um, but you know, when we talked about the beer, and it was, it, and their dunkel was just a revelation to me. It was I'd, I'd not tried it before, and it was just nectar. Um, but you know, a, a, as he said, you know, we, we we've been brewing on this site. There's some discussion between them and uh, Weinstefan, who was the older brewery. Um, they're the oldest monastery monastery brewery, and there's about 15 years um, difference between the 1040 and 1055. But you know, he sort of says we want the beer to taste the same not necessarily the recipe to stay the same because we're using malts and hops that weren't around 30, 40 years ago. So we, oh, we can't... And, and techniques. And the other thing too is that, you know, in in simple terms, uh, 20 people used to want it, 20 million people maybe now want it. So you, you've got to, if you want things to stay the same, you've got to expect change. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's why, like, we've recently seen Cooper's talking about, you know, nothing's changed about um, Cooper's... Uh, you know, uh, sparkling ale, which on, on one hand just you know, is, is a stretch, but on the other hand, you know, it is still very, very true. They no longer brew in wooden puncheons. They no longer, you know, um, you know yeah, open fermentation, open and fermentation, those sorts of things. ambient temperature and all that sort of stuff. And that's because people complained when they did that because the beer was, you know, it, it was variable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, but yes, yeah, so, so that was that was something I really, uh, r- really noticed and was really, really struck with how. You can be fiercely proud of your traditions um, and brew in the finest spirit of them, um, not necessarily some of the, you know, when uh, Darling Pale Ale comes out and talking about brewing in the spirit of something that we, uh, you know, forgot about until suddenly it became a marketing cry. But they can brew in the finest traditions um, but still cope with change in modernity without, uh, you know, having, uh, creating a, something that's worth getting an uproar about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, something else that I noticed, that, uh, you might have noticed that when we were there, Prof, um, you move from town to town and there are a couple of standards, there are a couple of big national brands, but you know every town has its own little brewery um, that you know, all, all of the umbrellas and all of the um, paraphernalia at most of the bars is around that little brewery. And I started asking questions about that and what that was about. Um, and that brought us into the element of contracts. And, you know, most of the pubs over there are very heavily contracted or contracted to one, um, you know, provider. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be an issue over there. No, well, I think when you have the range of beers and the mindset that you drink local, so... You, if you if you want your favourite beer that's not uh, you know a, an international multinational brand, then bring it with you, because otherwise you're, you're going to get a beautiful version of a pale lager, of a Hefeweizen, of a Dunkel, of um, you know a, a smoked ale or whatever it might be, but it's going to come from the the brewery that you know one of one of several breweries that's that's in that town that you're in. Absolutely, and and that's where it's uh, you know fascinating when when we talk about style. Um, and you know, th- there's a lot of variability in, of, of style in um, craft brewing. So somebody might call their beer a golden ale, which of course isn't a defined style. But you know, you can have uh, James Squire golden ale and you know a Fortitude Brewing golden ale, which are two vastly different things. 
if you go into a um, you know, bar in anywhere in Bavaria and ask for their Hellas or just ask for a beer, you're going to get the serve the Hellas. And there's not going to be too much change between, you know, 30 different breweries Hellas. They pretty much what you order is what you get. So you don't need, you know, seven different breweries on tap because, you know, the, every uh, bar is going to have the Hellas. They're going to have a Dunkel. They'll have the wheat beer. Um, there's a bit of variability in, in, in the wheat beers. Um, they, there might be a Dunkelweiss, um, and then they'll have whatever the, you know, there'll be a Bock or whatever the seasonal beer is, um, and then there'll be a, a Christmas beer and those sorts of things. So when everybody's roughly doing, you know, there's a great selection of beers that each um, brewery is providing, but they're all providing roughly the same style. You don't need to have, you know, seven different breweries on tap because each brewery uh, can provide that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, one, one of the few ones that I did see where, you know, for example, you'd see Schneiderweiss on a lot of places, but then you would see another brewery as well. And uh, that's because Schneider is one of the few breweries that only does um, wheat beer. They don't do the lagers. So no. you can do the, the, the Schneider beers and then have, uh, you know, the, the lager or the bottom fermenting uh, beers, as they from, call them. From someone else. Uh, from someone else. And uh, Yeah, and so I thought that was fascinating. But obviously it's a little bit different. Um but it did get me thinking that, you know, for all of the gnashing of teeth that we have now about how homogenised the beer industry got here um, and, you know, that there were only two big players, um, we were also pretty much drinking just one type of beer and it was a very light, pale lager. It, it, as much as German brewing um, probably isn't as dynamic as a lot of the craft beer centres around the world, they still had a lot of choice. Um, you know, they had a dark beer. They had, you know, they, they had the beers that we went through, and, and and that was what people wanted. So maybe they never reached the stage that they were. That it was such a white bread, you know, white, um, you know, sun, you know, supermarket white bread um, world that they needed the kaleidoscope of colours because they they always had the choice that they were happy with. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Apart from that, I guess the and I'll just contrast that with um, I then spent some time in Italy, um, and Italy's got a really vibrant um, craft brewing culture. And after spending a week in Germany, where you could walk in any bar and know exactly what you were getting and what you were ordering, suddenly to walk into one of the craft beer bars in Italy um, and have you know thirty taps, each one with a different brewery, even when you recognise the style. And ordering a beer for that, it's completely different to what you expect because style doesn't mean as much. It, it was a really intimidating experience. It made me realise that you know, for all that um, people that are into the craft beer world love that sense of adventure that they get every time the tap handle is pulled, you really need to be invested in wanting to be on that journey. Um, to, and be prepared for a lucky dip. And be prepared sometimes. for the lucky dip. And I'll tell you what, Prof, that is only ever going to be the smallest. No matter how much we talk about a craft beer revolution, that is only ever going to be the smallest part of the market. Um, and I'll equate that to, you know, when you're a tourist, you're very conscious of being a tourist and you're watching all of the other tourists. Um, and, you know... There are people who want to go on the Kentucky tour where every decision is made for them and they just jump on the bus and they get off and everything's done. Eat what you're given, drink eat, what you're given, sleep where you're told. Yep. Yep. Get and on the bus. Get off the bus. Some people that just want to, you know, go right off the beaten track. And uh, whichever one you want to do, 
we're all looking for the same satisfaction, personal satisfaction that comes from it. So, uh, yeah. yeah so, and it, so, may, it may surprise some of our listeners to learn that Italy is actually, I think, I'm pretty sure it's the third largest craft market in the world. Yeah, and, and, and I could see that. Um, you know, you, you've still got the old classics. Um, you've got uh, Peroni and Birra Moretti, um, which are owned by two of the big houses. Um, did you spend any time in Italy, Prof? I can't remember when you were there last year. No, no, no. never been to Italy. Okay. Um, up in the, in, in the far north where I spent a little bit of time, there's a brewery called Forst. Um, and I tried it. I bumped into it for the first time when I was in Rome. Um, it was just, you know, the, the one beer that wasn't the mainstream lagers, and I tried that, and it was just a, you know, a, a very nice, uh, you know, European premium lager, almost a Hellas um, style beer. Um, but then once you get to northern Italy, it is just everywhere, and it's the beer, um, and it's a big independently owned uh, brewery um, in in Italy, from what I could find out about it. Um, so even Italy, said it, it wasn't anywhere last time I was there, but it seemed to be everywhere this time. So I'm actually wondering whether the craft beer um, that we're seeing explode in Italy isn't also seeing people start to look for independence as the big two. Um, I, I, I don't know. It was just a quite obvious observation. I haven't been able to find anyone that can answer that question. But uh, there does seem to be a lot of you know adventurism uh, going on there as well. Yeah. Yeah, there we so, go. Um, actually, the, the one thing that I'll relate that back to home, I, I have come home and Carlton or C, uh, CUB uh, or AB InBev Megabrew, as uh, it's now called, um, has recently launched uh, back in September Carlton Pale Ale. Um, and James Atkinson uh, wrote about that, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, which, again, you know, it, it, if that's what you want to drink and that's what gives you pleasure, all well and good. Um, not going to, but the one thing I have noticed is that the billboards um, seem to have taken the odd tack. You know, the ale that you can drink without waiting an hour between sips, I think, is the uh, tagline for it. Yeah, Which, and the ad sort of runs along similar sort of things with, you know, there's a bloke sitting on his own at the bar with the, you know, the long hair and the long beard who's been sitting on his pale ale trying to get uh, through it for. Okay. For forty years, um, and and well, you don't have to wait that long anymore. And here's the, you know, again, a bunch of blokes, um, presumably four of them. I haven't looked at the ad that carefully. Um, who are, you know, ready to smash them down because we've basically, I don't know, is it? Do you think admitting that we've made a pale ale, but it's it would, look, it's really just a lager, but we've used a, an ale yeast. Okay. Um, but you, you know, you can make it. We want to get into that bit of the market. Yeah, and look, I guess it's we, we want to we want to produce an ale that's not under the uh, the yak ales. Um, <laughs> yeah, something something that's not franchise. Who who are advertisers on the site? Oh, of course. Um, but yeah, and that, that's the thing. But I guess you know, first thing I'll comment, I'll say about that. You know, most marketing plays off some sort of cliche. Uh, most advertising and craft brewers can you know can't um, you know say that they're indifferent because there's a whole lot of cliches that. Uh, you know, they play off, you know, the like the um, classic one is Mega Brew or Mega Swill. Um, you know, we're doing something different. We're doing, you know, we're expressing our own individuality. Yet while everyone's following the same craft brewing trends that every other craft brewer is doing, there aren't too many guys who are really blazing their own path. Um, so, you know, that's fine. If they need to have a go at hipsters, there's obviously a, you know, a big swell of people who, you know, think that all craft beer is a hipster's drink and they want something that's not a hipster's drink. 
but it, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see how it goes, particularly since you know the, there are other offerings along those sort of lines of the light, easier drinking sort of, um, uh, I guess, mainstream craft, if you like. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how how long they give it and what sort of numbers they expect out of it, um, you know, before they you know, quietly disengage it. But the central conceit of the ad is that, you know, you want to drink your beer quickly or, you know, it, it, it's got to be drinkable or it's got to be those sorts of things. And Not, you, not chewy. Not chewy. And, you know, like over the years, the, the, the guy, the, the brewers from, even the brewers, it's not just the marketers, it's the brewers from the, from the big breweries, you know, always say, well, you know, we use cane sugar in the beer to lighten the body because not everybody wants to, you know, sit on these big, heavy, heavy beers. Um, and, and you still think, well, even when you've got guys like Chuck Hahn, who is a bloke who really loves beer and loves brewing, saying those sorts of things, you know, we need to lighten the body because, you know, some of these lagers are, are, are pretty heavy. These all malt lagers are pretty heavy. Prof, you know, like I, having just come back from... Good, good luck finding one in Germany. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. You, you go to Germany and they have very 500 years of the Reinheitsgebot. There's a whole lot of celebration around that. At one, angle, at one level, it is a marketing term, but there is a whole lot of pride around it and that there is this fierce brewing tradition that we only use malt, water, hops and yeast. We don't use cane sugar. Um, and, mate, if you're, if you're over there drinking a Hellas, I don't know anyone who... I, I've never heard anybody come back from Germany and say, you know, gee, I love those German beers, but... Oh, yeah, those, you can only have one or two. Yeah, those pale lagers <laughs> are a little bit chewy, aren't they? Um, well, and, that all malt, geez, it gets you after the, you know, halfway through the first stein. Yeah, so Not. look at, they are the most delicate, light flavored, you know, it, it, and and inexpensive, and and inexpensive, exactly. Well, look, uh, yeah, well, and so that 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 is an issue that we have here. That, uh, but I think a big part of that is tax. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, but you look at the brewing traditions and you speak to, when you go through somewhere like Weinstein, they talk about the decoction mashing and they use very expensive brewing processes. What our brewers here say are expensive brewing processes, but they're still making these beers. Um, and that are cheap enough to be sold at railway stations and mill bars. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, there's a whole lot of economics around government, you know, legislation, duty and tax and those sorts of things. But the, the point is that they're not heavy beers that you know they're not full-bodied beers so full-bodied that no one's going to drink them and it's got nothing to do you know the other thing is they say well you know we're a hot country we need these light beers it it, it, it's just a nonsense i mean it it really is about brewing cheap beers that you can get down to a price to make them smashable um there probably is some truth in you know when you look at a corona or when you look at a you know uh hard super dry or you know pure blonde there is something about those beers that they have no distinguishable flavor um so there's nothing to offend anybody there's no bitterness there's no flavor there's a little bit of you know sweetness or something that comes through that you know tells you that it's a beer um but you know that is purely about you know making beers that are so vanilla that there's nothing to upset anybody um except people who want flavor um, and, and that was the one time I heard brewers get really, really passionate. Is that you know talking the, the German brewers get really passionate? Was talking about how commodified um, beer has become and how devalued and cheap it's become. That there is a lot of pressure on them to brew beers cheaper, um, and they don't want to throw away these brewing traditions. Um, and it's been the international beers that have just 
commodified beer, um, which was quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, look, Prof, if that's if coming back to Carl Powell, if that's the way that they feel they need to market their beer, and there is a perception that all beers are drunk by bearded, you know, hipsters, and uh, that they're all chewy and hard, then then that's fine. But you know, ultimately, I think that it, you know, pandering to negative perceptions about all beer, you know, harms the entire category. But anyway, um, yeah. But look, at, at, at the risk of um, spoiling our listeners by giving them three weeks worth of uh, intro, we probably should uh, leave it there and uh, and get on with our our guest for today. But talk us through it. Well, we uh, well you and I managed to sneak in a, a chat with uh, John Selton on the morning that it was announced that uh, Hawkers had won the Champion International Brewery at the uh, World Beer Challenge, and we were lucky enough to to get John and uh, talk to him a little bit about uh, his journey through beer and uh, where he is currently with Hawkers. Yeah, and uh, look, again, we mused, I think, the week before um, for, for the intro that did go to air, um, that, you know, International Beer Challenge, what is it? it how big a story is it? Um, we got a million me- uh, media releases from different brewers saying they won X, you know, they won Y. Um, yeah, um we were having a chat to John about it, so it went out um, in there. That article didn't go out, and so uh, you know, I understand Muzzin's a little bit upset about us not covering it, that we are a new site. But, you know, anyway, that, that, that's one of those things. But we, uh, we, we talk uh, quite thoroughly with John about it here, and uh, he gives it some great context. So uh, let's chat to John Selton. We're, as a fairly new brewery, we like to get as much feedback on, on what we're doing as possible, right? So we're, um, we're always looking for... Uh, we, we can do we can do a lot of this internally, right, through our own sensory processes and through our tasting panels. But you know, when you get a bit of um, external feedback in the form of beer awards, you know, it, it 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 it's great for sort of for the marketing guys and for the sales guys. But you know, the the thing that I like the most about it is that we're getting a a sort of a reality check on how we're going against our peers or against you know against other breweries. Um, and so the news today is, um, I mean, it's it's really great. We were we were super stoked. Um, We've um, we've had pretty solid results um, in in the awards that we've been entering over the past um, you know over the past well 18 months of our existence and um, and this is uh, this is a real feather in the cap so all the all the production guys are super happy we're all um, all really pleased with it. Now, John, just in terms of the the nuts and bolts of of the international beer challenge, it's yep. the, a, a culmination of like so to win the supreme champion brewery is obviously mm-hmm. a, it's a, uh, an, a, an aggregate or an average of um, scores from all of the beers that you've entered, whereas the That's champion right. beer yeah. is, is, is a specific yep. beer you've won uh, based on the, I guess, the fullness of your portfolio. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, it's a good gauge of how we're going overall. I mean, we get great individual feedback on each of the um, of each of the beers that we've entered, and, and um, I think we got I think we got silvers and golds for everything, which we were very very pleased with. Um, but um, yeah, the, the the Supreme Champion Trophy is for the for the brewery that has overall sort of the strongest um, the strongest results across all the um, across all the products they enter, all the brands they enter. So, I think. Um, the Prancing Pony guys, I mean, I'm only just coming up to speed myself with um, with what the results were, but I, I think the Prancing Pony guys got um, uh, got um, Champion Beer, which is um, excellent kudos to them, another really young brewery um, doing great things in South Australia. Um, 
so they had the, the highest scoring individual beer. But overall, across all of our entries, um, we um, we managed to to snag the um, Supreme um, Champion Brewery Award. So yeah, we're really stoked. <laughs> but how hard was it? Uh, you know, sending beer across the world to be judged um, you know, is really committing it to the, the vagaries of the uh, international transport system. W- w- was there much thought uh, about that? Uh, yeah. Um, look, my philosophy on that sort of stuff is. You know, it, it's probably fairly representative of how the beer is out in trade um, anyway. So when it comes to all of our beer awards, you know, be it the AIBAs or, um, you know, or, uh, you know, um, CBIA awards or, or any of the international ones, you know, sure, we take care to send um, the best examples we've got. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't brew special batches for it or anything like that. It's representative of our, of what's out there in the market. And, and I and I feel that sort of the the amount of abuse it gets in actually arriving to the to the awards is probably you know sort of indicative of the sort of abuse that the beer gets through our normal um, logistical sort of supply chain channels. You know, so it's I mean, you know, uh, it's always nice to be able to deliver a beer, sort of a super brewery fresh beer that's being you know cold supply chain the whole way there. But it's 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 not really a great indication of. Um, of how the beer really tastes in the punter's hands. So, you know, the fact that it inevitably gets moved around a lot, kicked around a lot on um, on boats or on planes, you know, heated up and cooled down a couple of times and still manages to taste all right um, is uh, is a good thing. And, and like I said, a bit of a reality check against how it's likely to t- um, taste in the in the hands of um, of the, the people who are typically drinking it. That's a great, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a great thought. It's, it's And it's, not something that a lot of brewers have said. You know, a lot of brewers have been uh, concerned about how their beers travel. But as yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating. But we, we, yeah, we, we, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you always want to present the best, the best possible example. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, if we had complete control over it, I'd, you know, I'd, uh, I'd hand fill a, a bottle, you know, in a completely uh, anaerobic chamber and uh, and transport it, you know, wrapped in three meters of bubble wrap at uh, <laughs> at, uh, at precisely <laughs> precisely two degrees, but. Um, but yeah, I think at the same time, um, you know, that's typically not um, not how it's treated in trade. So um, why not get a why not get an idea of how it really tastes? Well, we've actually got a little bit of ahead of ourselves uh, because we've gone straight into the news um, off, off the back of uh, <laughs> starting our phone call with you. Maybe we can sort of step back a little <laughs> bit and uh, you know, we, we start with our usual question and uh, tell us a little bit about John Selton. Well, uh, I've been um, I'm. I'm I'm a fairly new brewer, um, so I've, I've, uh, I came uh, late to brewing. Um, I, I had a background in, um, in uh, education administration and sort of tertiary education stuff before becoming a brewer, and like so many other people, sort of uh, slid down that slippery slope of, uh, of obsession with beer. And, and for me, sort of obsession with the science of beer or process behind beer as well. Um, I was sort of um, lucky enough to, to score a gig with some really great mentors at the start of my career and, um, and uh, you know, had some, had some really great on-the-job training for some, from some really, experienced, um, some really experienced brewers and then, and then just got very lucky from there on in. So um, I, think, um, I think my sort of brewing story or my, you know, trajectory into becoming a brewer is, is really a story of, uh, of luck more than anything, being in the right place at the right time and... Um, and um, and uh, um, uh, you know, just sort of falling on my feet in a couple of positions, and 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 uh, always that sense of uh, you know biting off a little bit more than you can chew, keeping swimming, and and sort of growing in the process and learning a lot in the process. So that's um, that's how I've spent the previous sort of six or seven years of my life. You know, in that uh, in that perpetual sort of feeling of uh, just keeping your head above water, 
and uh, and keeping up with uh, with the way the industry's changing, the way beer brewing's changing, and the um, um, you know the sort of the the, the the changes in the in the nature of the kind of jobs I've been doing over the past um, yeah over the past six or seven years. There's got to I'm be sure, a, Matt. Oh, I don't know. No, you go, Prof. I was just going to say that because I was just going to say this. There's got to be a little bit of uh, modesty um, there because uh, Muzzin's not the easiest bloke to work for, I'd imagine. <laughs> oh, he's look. He's a um, he's a visionary. You know, he's a um, yeah. I mean, uh, he's. Uh, uh, I mean, we've got a really great working relationship. I think that's one of the. I think that's one of the. The sort of the things that I'm learning the most about now. You know, more and more of my time's taken up with. Um, um, with sort of um, uh, building a you know a great team of people, you know, uh, I'm you know I'm I'm really uh, not um, I'm not brewing every single batch of beer now. You know, the the more and more when we first started up Hawkers, it was very very hands on, just a, you know you know me and a couple of casuals doing everything like that now. And we've gone through so much rapid growth that now my job sort of morphed more into a you know in a into a more of a into a more of a leadership job I guess you know growing and mentoring the the brewing teams and um and by and in the process learning a lot of them well, lots of them in the along the way you know I'm, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by some some awesome brewers some awesome awesome salmon excellent packaging guys um and it goes it goes both ways as well you know sort of above me I've got a um a couple of guys who have got some some great experience and fairly unique uh disruptive I think is a great <laughs> term for it in all the in all the inflections of that word um uh, ideas about what craft beer should be and different ways of uh, of, um, of of uh, of doing craft beer, I guess, in an Australian context. Um, so it's um, yeah, no, we I get on really well with uh, with everyone in our organisation. I think we're uh, we do um, we do a reasonably good job here. I suspect that there's uh, more than just a little bit of um, uh, I guess a skill that you've. Um, grown to embrace, which is uh, knowing how and when to tell Muzzin just to fuck off out of your brew house. <laughs> is this all being... Uh, I, I can't go on the record for any of this, guys. Come on, <laughs> give us a break. <laughs> no. no Maz, um, I spoke hey, look, to Maz um, on the phone. I told him this was going to happen. It's actually... No, look, we've got a really great working relationship, Maz and I. You know, Maz, um, he's, not a, he's not a micromanager. You know, like when we first set up the brewery, uh, we align pretty closely with our ideas about what craft beer should be, you know, and I think it's, I think it's more reflected in our beers as well. You know, we don't make, um, we don't make uh, off the scale beers, you know, things that are, uh, you know, incredibly, um, uh, uh, you know, overly flavored, incredibly bitter, massive in alcohol or anything like that. You know, we're about sort of refinement, I think our beers, you know, refinement and balance and, and producing something that we can be really proud for, about in a, in a sort of a, from a quality point of view. So we aligned on that, and then and then basically he let me do my thing. So you know when when I developed all the all the Hawkers brands to start with, um, uh, he was he was fairly hands off, and and that was a um, that's something that I'm super grateful for. You know he was uh, he he put a lot of time and effort into setting up this um, into setting up this brewery and put a hell of a lot of trust then into me to, to make it happen. And uh, so it was a bit of a nerve wracking experience, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, it's a great working relationship. You know, we'll, we'll bounce ideas about off each other about, uh, about um, you know, the direction that we'd like to change, take things or about, you know, upcoming releases. But um, look, he's very supportive and, yeah, and basically fairly, when it comes to the operational side of things at least, um, uh, gives, um, 
you know, gives us in, in operation space to, to do our thing, to do the stuff that we, that we like to do and that we know how to do. And John, colloquially, uh, and only slightly jokingly, um, the <laughs> Hawkers, particularly the brewery itself, is, is often referred to yep. um, sometimes from within um, as the Death Star. Yep. It, it, <laughs> it's, like, it's a technological project it's, and it's, it's grown and it's, uh, you know, seemingly poised to, you know, sort of take over the empire. But um, <laughs> in all seriousness, how important uh, are the tools to, ha to do the job to you? Um, how, how important is it to have that kit behind you in order to be able to consistently produce the quality that you do? Oh, look, I think it's key, you know, and um, it's, uh, it's gone from being the Death Star to being Skynet. Skynet's what we call the automation system here because occasionally, you know, it'll just, you know, it'll work beautifully a lot of the time and help with things that humans aren't necessarily that great at. But then occasionally it'll try and wipe out the entire human species. It'll just say, <laughs> oh, sorry, guys, we're not going to do that for you today. But um, look, it's, yeah, it's great because it, it, it takes the boring stuff, you know, or the unproductive stuff, the, the, the machine aspect of brewing out of the hands of the brewers, freeing up their time to focus on on what I consider to be the important things. I don't think looking at a timer um, um, or a flow meter um, or a dipstick even and, um, and then opening and closing valves is really what brewing's about. I think it's about, you know, bigger picture stuff, you know, um, uh, monitoring the, you know, the the quality of the ingredients that we're using, how they change with seasons, um, keeping on top of quality parameters, keeping on top of the, you know, the huge amount of sort of data and information that we create in the brewing process, and then using that information to make informed um, brewing choices or informed process choices in the in the pursuit of sort of continual improvement. Um, what it allows us to do is. Um, is basically uh, delegate all that opening and closing of valves, timers, things like that, to a computer. So it one doesn't get forgotten. You know that those things can happen in a in a more automatic, easier way. Um, and 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 two, yeah, frees up our time to focus on those more important things. I mean, that's the work production side of things. In the cellars, it's great because we can get really great, useful information out of our. Um, all of our sort of all of our process logging stuff in the cellars related to time and gravity shift and you know see how the beer is well tracking along through its sort of its progression and then in packaging you know we we really invested in a in a nice packaging line um, and and that sort of helps ensure that you know the beer gets into bottles and into kegs in the best possible condition in the condition that's not going to degrade in a um, in just a couple of uh, in just a couple of days but. Um, uh, you know, and the, the the beer will continue to taste good for um, as long as it possibly can out in the out in the trade. Um, but that's to say, you know, it's, there's a lot of hype as well. You know, <laughs> sometimes you know when when people come and see the see the brewery and see all the nice HMIs and flashy things and you know moving valves and stuff like that. I mean, it is it is um, still a hell of a lot of hard work and a lot of hard maintenance work and. And it's really a testament to the guys who work here, um, just how well they keep this thing purring along. You know, the guys who are actually brewing the wort, who are managing the cellars and who are packaging the beer, um, are, are, are very, very busy, busy individuals at this brewery. And they, uh, they work very, very hard. And the, the automation sort of basically means that they can just squeeze more into their already very crowded days. You, you said something that really resonated with me. Uh, you took talked about brewing isn't about, you know, turning valves, if, if I paraphrase you correctly. Um, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, 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 the proud boasts on so many 
um, you know, bottles and you know, brewery websites is handcrafted beer. Um, you know, mm, mm, did, mm. Did, did, does that mean that you don't have the ability to put handcrafted on your um, you know, bottles or does handcrafted actually... Skynet crafted. Yeah, <laughs> Skynet crafted. Skynet crafted. Yeah. Skynet crafted. <laughs> doesn't quite have that same resonance as handcrafted. You know, no. it, yeah. it, 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 it's one of those things. I think um, you know, people love to say handcrafted without really giving too much yep. thought about what it means. It captures marble and the constitution and the vibe of what you're putting together. But mm, e- e- yeah. even in a brewery that's as, as automated as yours, I mean, I, I, I guess you would still want to put the same slant in terms of flavour forward and quality driven as somebody who's saying that there's a very much handcrafted. Um, is there an internal dissonance between those two ideas? Look, not at all, I don't think. I mean, I'm not a marketeer at all. I'm just a, I'm, I'm very much a process guy. You know, I'm very much a, uh, you know, a, um, a, an operations person. So, I mean, I don't, I don't really buy in. I, I think that's really more a question for, for the marketing people, you know, in the way that they choose to spin it. Well, all I know is that, um, you know, uh, with the kind of technologies that we've got here, you know, which, which, you know, it's sure it's great. You know, it's not, not anywhere close to say what, uh, what some of the, some of the big craft breweries in the, um, in the States have or in Europe have. Um, what it does, like I said, is it sort of, it, it frees up the menial parts of brewing. You know, there's still plenty of that, mind you. There's still plenty of cleaning involved, still plenty of, um, um, you know, uh, manual measurement. Um, we, still, we still mill the vast majority of our grain by hand, um, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, it, you know, it really allows you to dedicate all your time as a brewer and all your effort onto, onto the quality parameters of the beer. It's not, it's not at all a way of skirting out or making things easier for us. If anything, it just, if anything, it makes things a little bit harder. You know, like it, it, it means that we have to use the data that, you know, that uh, comes out of the brewing process. Oh, you know, this batch of malt that's been delivered this week is slightly hotter than the previous batch. You know, what process changes do we need to make in order to make the beer come out the other end consistently? You know, it frees up our time to think about things like that to think about the, yeah, like I said, the changing nature of our raw ingredients um, and and how we can use them to make, yeah, the tastiest beer and the most sort of true to style or true to brand beer that we that we possibly can. So, I, I mean, personally, I don't see any any discontinuity between those two things. I think, um, and I think most brewers are sort of the same. Um, uh, uh, you know, obviously you spin what you've got and we do that as well. You know, we, we like to we like to boast about, you know, the amount of process control we've got and automation systems that we've got here. But um, you know, that's not that's not what defines a brewery. I don't think it's um it's more about the dedication to the the finished product, you know, um, how are we using this to produce the best beer we possibly can. So, um and I think that's the thing that we've got in common with a lot of a lot of breweries, no matter how small they are, even to, you know, old Jim brewing in buckets down the road, you know, like the, the, what 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 I think makes what we do special is is what we're trying to achieve on you know in the beer coming out the other end. When when you say that um, and, and and you talk about you know the, the ingredients coming in can be a little bit different from batch to batch, um, and you need to work out um, how we accommodate that in our process. Are you trying to get the each batch tasting the same as the last, or to make the best beer within the parameters that that batch will allow, uh, that that those changed ingredients will allow, um, even if the beer tastes a little bit different? Yeah, look, consistency is sort of our mantra here at Hawkers. You know, um, that's not to say the beers don't change. You know, over the course of a year, 
we might decide, look, we want to, we want to, um, you know, uh, we want to take the pale ale in a slightly different direction. We want the balance on, you know, the more sort of resinous sort of hop notes rather than the fruitier hop notes that we've currently got. And all, you know, whatever that is. But those changes will be deliberate and they'll be very, very gradual changes. The idea is that, yeah, batch to batch, we try and, you know, we try and make it as, uh, as consistent using the, you know, the means we've got as possible. And, and this is the great frustration, I think, of, you know, of, of all brewers, you know, regardless of whether they're in, you know, in big beer or in, uh, you know, in, in the tiniest little brew pub, um, the fact that we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with biological processes and we're dealing with natural ingredients. Um, you know, if, if the barley growing area um, that we're getting our malt from gets a little bit more rain that year or is a little drier, or if um, our hop growing region is pelted by hail, or um, um, as as, uh, as happened in Cross um, Trevor uh, recently, or you know if if oil levels are slightly different across hops, or if our hop selections sort of vary a little bit year to year, um, um, we've got to be able to make process changes that uh, that make the beer you know um, taste how we want it to taste, you know remain consistent. Um, on, on shorter timescales, and then if we are choosing to to slowly make any change, do it in a gradual way so that you know so that it's barely, if at all, perceptible to consumers. But yeah, consistency really is batch to batch consistency is our our mantra here at Hawkers. And John, that probably really links nicely into I guess the ethos of the of the breweries. Uh, range of beers which is yep. as you said um more in the the tradition you know making a, a, a valid interpretation of a, a traditional style so that you i guess the consumer doesn't have to guess as to you know what what type of beer you know is this funky sounding name hawker's pilsner yep. hawker's pale ale hawker's saison yep. there's at least some yep. idea yep. okay i don't know whether it's perhaps a german or a czech style or a european style pilsner but at yep. least i know i guess you know what what to expect um how important yep. is that going forward and on the other side of that in terms of you know uh, uh barrel aging or a barrel room uh program mm. or you know, mm-hmm. is there going to be a sideline series of uh seasonals or you know okay now we're going to do some funky ones how important is it yeah. to kind of, I guess, stick to what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, look, we we have internal discussions about that sort of stuff here at Hawkers, and a and a, you know, we've done a bit of soul searching recently about, you know, what sort of beers we want to bring out over the next year. I don't want to preempt too much because that'll give away all the excitement. But I mean, I think, for example, our most recent um, uh, our most recent seasonal releases, our you know, Imperial Stout, the barrel aged version of that beer, are a kind of a continuation of what we've done with the core range. You know, like um, uh, with that beer, we wanted to make a you know a beer that was refined, a beer that was an imperial stout, but that was subtle. Which <laughs> might sound like a bit of an oxymoron, but we, you know we didn't want to we didn't want a beer that was overly acrid or overly roasty or boozy. And and they're the definitional features a lot of people associate with imperial stouts. You know, beers that really knock your knock your socks off. We wanted to make something that was you know gentle and velvety and drinkable above all. Um, and 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 I think we're all super proud with how um, with how that turned out. And and for at least for the next couple of um, at least for the next couple of seasonal beers, I think we'll probably go down a similar a similar track. That's not to say we won't interpret the strange or weird styles. The exciting thing we've got happening here at the moment is this big expansion of our barrel program. So we've got I think now just over 75 um, great new fresh. Um, uh, bourbon barrels, um, all from Kentucky, all you know, straight from the straight from the distilleries, um, and we're going to augment that with a bunch of uh, um, 
don't know if it's top secret. You heard it here, folks. A bunch of Aquavit barrels as well from Norway. Um, and we've got some, yeah, we've got some interesting ideas about how we're, how we're going to use those over the next couple of years. Um, uh, but I, I think the hawker's mentality isn't going to change, and that's that we're going to be focused on quality, not necessarily trying to um, um, uh, brew the loudest beer, you know, the thing that's going to attract the most attention or the thing that's going to blow people's socks off because one aspect of that beer is, is massively... Um, accentuated or exaggerated you know we're we're, we're really dedicated to, to producing beer that we it's a cliche right it's a real cliche i'm about to indulge in here a beer that we really love to drink um and something that we'd be willing to drink a lot of in in uh in quantity to make the best use of our uh, of our monthly allocations here at Hawkers. but um but you know i think i think we'll really stick at least in the short term with this with this focus on balance and of refinement you know um, they're, they're sort of some of our overriding brewing um, philosophies here. Um, so I guess, John, what, what next? I mean, how I know that you guys have been looking to grow your territory. Um, I'm based in Brisbane, as uh, regular listeners will know. Um, we don't see your beers up here. You know, do you have plans to, to conquer the rest of the country? Um, I, think the, I, think, uh, I think world domination was on the last week's management meeting <laughs> agenda that I, I saw on Nathan's <laughs> notes. Um, so, yeah, I think we... yeah. <laughs> Blitzkrieg into into um, into Queensland next, and then uh, and then the rest of the world. Um, no, look, I think uh, you know we're we're going through the same sort of growing pains that a lot of breweries go with go through. You know, like um, uh, yeah, you know um, difficulty in in servicing um, demand. You know, uh, uh, we really need to um, you know uh, think through our expansion really carefully because we don't want to leave any of our existing clients high and dry and short of beer. Um, and we want to make sure that we can provide good service when we when we do expand. But um, I'd say that um, I'd say that Queensland is probably our next our next move. Yeah. So slowly, slowly, we've got dribs and drabs of beer in in Adelaide and Tasmania already. at some really great some really great venues. I'm off to to Tassie next week to do some um, bottle shop tastings and to meet some of our some of our um, some of our, our trade clients down there. But I'd say um, yeah, I'd say hopefully within. You know, not too long a timeline within the next few months. You can expect to see a fair bit more of our of our beer up in Queensland. I hope. You you, you talked about the um, you know, despite wanting to to grow a, a business, that there are just physical limitations on on doing that. And it's not just brewing brewery size and making sure that you are able to supply to your existing co- uh, customers. What are the logistic logistics issues that you face as a brewery? You know, wanting to to d- distribute uh, beer in a country as big as Australia. Yeah, look, it's um, it is a struggle, and increasingly that's what more and more of my time's taken up thinking about. Um, not necessarily getting the finished beer out there to clients in a way that um, means that it's uh, it moves through the you know the pipeline nice and quickly and reaches people nice and fresh and is drunk in its best condition. But I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the the physical limitations or the logistics of actually making the beer. So um, you know we. We get a lot of our base malt, for example, from a big German maltster, and um, and just to get it here, you know, like uh, it's about a, you know, it's about a six-week, I guess, lead time between orders, and uh, with the seasonal variations in our, you know, in our brewing schedule, and um, with production sort of seeming to constantly ramp up and up and up, you know, we've got to make sure that that pipeline's constantly full. So at any one time, we might have, you know, four, six containers sort of either being loaded in. Um, 
in, in Germany or on the water or being unloaded here being turned into beer. And then even on the, on the other end, you know, we've got to, you know, then get all that spent grain out to hungry cows, you know, in a smaller brewery, it's not so much of an issue. You can sort of get it out to, um, you know, nearby farmers, but we're, you know, we're generating, um, just so much, um, physical, uh, sort of byproduct in our process, be it spent grain, be it yeast, you know, that we've got to plan for all of that stuff. You sort of run into some, some sort of diseconomies of scale as you, as you're growing and as you're trying to find solutions for this stuff. We're lucky because, you know, um, all this stuff isn't necessarily a type of waste. It doesn't go into landfill or anything like that. You know, it's, it's used for a productive, meaningful sort of um, purpose down the line, you know, composting or pig farming or cattle farming or, or whatever. But um, the, the, the logistics of just moving things in and out is, uh, is uh, yeah, it's starting to, starting to, I had a, yeah, I always joke I had a real full head of hair before I started this job and it's really receding now. <laughs> but um, we've, um, we've, to help with that sort of stuff, we've, we've, grown internally you know we've got a couple of people who are um well one full-time person and some support people who whose job is just entirely logistics now you know um we're getting that many and it's it's normal for larger breweries but it's new for it's new for me and it's new for us as an organizational focus as well you know we're just getting i'm looking at a, a you know a long line of trucks waiting to be loaded into our loading bay at the moment you know so just the physical movement of beer out of the plant and raw materials into the plant is uh is yeah, is one of these physical sort of uh, limits that you have to deal with. One of these real world limits in um, in, in beer production. John, uh, as a regular segment, uh, a regular part of this segment, we ask uh, each of our guests uh, what we call Pacey's poser, which is a, a set question. Uh, but before we do that, um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to. Uh, I'm going to throw a prof's poser at you, mainly because mm -hmm. I happen to know for a fact that um, he's in London. Tell us something about Mazen Hajar that perhaps our listeners would not know. Uh, the man is addicted to two things. Well, probably some things I can't talk about on radio, but the two things that the man is addicted to, apart from craft beer, is Diet Coke. I've never seen a human being consume so much Diet Coke in my life. And I think we're single-handedly propping up the 7-Eleven down the road here with the, um, just the sheer amount he, he consumes. And Unica. Unica is this uh, Lebanese uh, sort of yep. chocolate wafer. And the man... Um, you know, I, I'm not complaining, right? Because I pill for them every time he's out of the office and, and eat as many as I possibly can as well. But uh, the man is a Diet Coke and Unica destroying machine. <laughs> okay, John, uh, and as Pete said, there is a thing called Pacey's Poser, and that is if you were to go back and do it all again, um, what would you, and this can be your career or it can be uh, Hawker's uh, Brewery, is there one thing that you would just say, I wish I could do that again, or what would I do differently? Okay, tricky one. Um, so, um, I mean, I uh, career-wise, you know, I I would have uh, like I'm in I'm in a dream position now. You know, I, I really love it here, um, and uh, and and I, I've sort of I've managed to, to um, find myself in this great job now, um, which I'm unlikely to sort of want to move on from at any point um, in in uh, in the next little while. Um, what I, what I would have liked to have done from a career point of view is had an opportunity to perhaps work in big beer for a little while prior to coming back to craft beer. Some of my um, some of the brewers I respect most around the world um, are people who have had um, previous careers dealing um, with with mega beer and then um, you know take those learnings and reapply them to uh, to the craft beer industry. So um, you know from a personal point of view uh, that from a from a from the point of view of hawkers. Um, 
allowing more space to deal with trade waste. It's <laughs> like there's, uh, or just, uh, you know, you make, uh, there's a number of little, uh, or, or changing the floor colour. That's the other big thing. The floor colour at this brewery, for whatever reason, really gets my goat. I wish we'd gone from red. We got, went for grey and I'll live a, I'll always live in, uh, in, um, I'll always live in regret for the fact that we didn't go with a more pleasing sort of upbeat floor colour. So it would be when we all work into work on a Monday morning, we're not meted with met with this sort of this drab bloody uh, grey slab that we've laid in here. But uh, yeah, look, we haven't cocked up anything too badly, I don't think, in the, <laughs> so far in the touch wood in the in the construction of this brewery. I think we um, I think we I think we made some good choices and invested where we needed to invest and. Um, um, uh, you know, we, I don't think we realised we would have uh, grown as quickly. So I've answered this question about five times now, but now, now that I've had a chance to think about it, space is probably the other one as well. You know, we've got a, a fairly big warehouse here that we, that we, built, the, that we built the brewery in. And, um, and when we first started, when I first walked in, I thought, Christ, there's no way we're going to fill this place. It's massive. And, um, and, and six months later, I was already thinking, oh, geez, it's getting cramped now. And, and now I think, oh, my God, this is reaching... Uh, <laughs> This is reaching uh, unsustainable levels. Where next, and wherever we'll be next, will uh, will have to be a step up in terms of in terms of size. That's for sure. Is that a better problem to have than having a brewery that is so big you don't know how you're going to uh, get the output through it? No, you could have a little gym. You know, you need a giant. If you if you've got a big brewery, you could put a little gym there. You could put a little bakery there. You know, a couple of couches and a TV. You know, like <laughs> I think uh, I think I'd always prefer to. I think I'd always prefer to have something bigger than something smaller. I mean, um, in terms of equipment capacity, I think we've I think we've hit it in a really sweet spot. So we we we've got a sort of a we cast out about 40 hectolitres of work, 40 to 45 hectolitres of work, depending on the strength of the beer every um, you know every turn. Um, but but one of the great things that we can do is we can brew a lot. So we're um, we can brew up to you know up to because you know because of the investment in automation and everything and the extra brew house vessels we can we can sort of brew eight times a day so it gives us you know a nice sweet spot we can do smaller batch experimental nice interesting stuff um, but also we can we can we can really churn when we have to you know when we really need to brew a lot we can we can turn it on quite quickly and, and respond quite nimbly to you know to, to bigger orders awesome well John thank you very much for joining us uh for Radio Brews News this week, and uh, congratulations once again on your win last week at the uh, uh, International Beer Challenge. Oh, look, my pleasure, and thanks so much for having me on. Hopefully, uh, it wasn't uh, hopefully it wasn't too boring for everyone out there in Radio Land. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Uh, we, we'd leave that to us. I know early on in the discussion, we sort of uh, you, you touched on your uh, humility, I guess, of, uh, of you know pinching yourself at uh, at being lucky. Um, and I'm reminded yep. of, of that old sporting adage that, um, yeah, yeah, we, we're really lucky. And it's funny, the, the harder we work, the luckier we get. Um, so I, I think you're probably down, downplaying your, um, your dedication to your, to your craft when you, when you sort of um, tell the listeners that, that, you're, that you're lucky. Uh, look, um, I, thank you very much. I appreciate it. But, uh, you know, I, um, I'm, for one, I'm surrounded by very competent, awesome people in, in my team, you know, so they're the, they're the, they do the bulk of the lifting. And it feels hard sometimes, but then I think about, you know, I think about the poor people with, with hard jobs, you know, like, like doctors and teachers and stuff like that, and I think, oh, I'm just making a drink, you know, I just want to make it as tasty as possible. But really, in the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's not, uh, no one, uh, 
no one's life, no one's life sitting in on it other than my own. Because if I ever made a bad batch, uh, you'll uh, you'll see me in an orange jumpsuit at the back. Madison's told me that on multiple <laughs> occasions. So, uh, yeah. but see, that, see, that's the thing, John. It, yeah, ultimately, people's lives aren't depending on it. But that doesn't mean the process to make beer, you know, as good as you do, doesn't involve the same level of science and understanding um, that. Yeah, it does. And, and, and it's not trying to equate, <laughs> here I go over explaining myself again, Prof. Uh, it's not trying to equate what you do with brain surgery, but it still requires a certain level of skill. And uh, yeah, as Prof said, uh, yeah, you, you make your own luck. And I, I also yeah, like I really to think. Sorry, yeah. I, I also like to think that a lot of the world's um, most crucial decisions have been made um, either by under the inspiration uh, or, you know, sitting having a chat over a nice beer. So there you go. Yeah, I. I think so. It just, um, I mean, it doesn't feel all that hard when you're so obsessed with it as well. You know, and we're in an industry where, um, you know, everyone, um, everyone who I'm surrounded by, I mean, like I said, like I hinted at before, they, they work, they work bloody hard, you know, and they work some, some really um, tough hours doing some really tough jobs. But, but ultimately everyone just loves making beer, you know what I mean? And is dedicated to making the tastiest, um, best beer that they possibly can. And so it, it doesn't, you know. Sure, it, you know, you might be at work for sixteen hours a day, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's, uh, um, like it's overly arduous because really, I think everyone here really loves what they do. Yeah, and look, that's probably a good opportunity before we sign off, John, to um, give a shout out to the the brewing crew because you you have mentioned them quite a bit without actually naming them, and and Mazin's gone to yep. quite a bit of trouble to. Um, uh, poach, no, not poach. What's the, uh, entice? Um, you know, <laughs> some some quality brewers from from other places. So give give them a shout out. Okay, so um, so brewing crew wise, uh, we're, we're, I'm I'm lucky to have um, to have Brenton and Justin. They're they're the work production workhorses at the moment who um, who make sure that all the the word is always up to scratch and tasting awesome and done on time and perfect um, in the cellars which is probably one of the most thankless, difficult jobs in the brewery and probably one of the most important. The guys who shepherd the beer from, you know, or from just being sugary liquid into being delicious, yummy beer and who take care of the, the billions of little yeasty lives in their hands every day are, um, are Dan, US Dan and, um, and Alex. Um, excellent, excellent celly eyes. I'm so lucky to have both of them. And then, and then the soldiers, the foot troops at the front, the packaging guys, Paul, Kane, um, all of the packaging casuals, um, you know, uh, um, they, they just, um, they're really the frontline troops. They're the guys who, um, you know, who have that unglamorous job of actually putting all the beer in bottles and in kegs, of repairing those machines that just need constant attention and constant work to keep them, to keep them working and to keep them working well. Um, uh, they're the guys that really um, that make the magic happen. I just, I, just make, I just make spreadsheets and yell at people. That's really all I do. <laughs> And Alex and Matt have, have, have got some, you know, uh, a little bit of like a fair bit of prestige behind them. And I can't help but thinking that at some point in the same way that, that you sort of come from, as you say, humbling beginnings um, to now sort of running that brewery, that uh, guys yep. like Alex and Matt at some stage down the track, not that, not that I wish it on you, but I can see those guys then, I guess, spreading their wings and, and, uh, and taking their own interpretation and uh, I guess, you know, making their way in the world. With their own breweries oh, at some definitely. stage. I mean, what, yeah, I mean, whatever they choose to do down the line, um, they'll excel at it because they're exceptionally hardworking. They're very, very clever, and um, and and more than anything, they, they care about what they do, which is which is really the uh, the defining feature of things. And that's what I tend to try and recruit for. You know, people who um, who really do have a a dedication to their craft. And these guys are 
exemplary examples of it. Terrific, John. Well, mate, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Bruce News once again, and uh, we look forward, well, I personally look forward to seeing your beers uh, heading to Brisbane soon. Hey, thank you very much for the opportunity, guys. Appreciate it. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, John Selton. Great chat, Prof. Uh, mate, he, God, what a what an enthusiastic, uh, passionate guy. Very, yeah. Um, humility and brewing genius in equal measure. I think with John, he's um, he kind of flies under the radar um, a little bit, but but there are plenty of beers around with his stamp on them um, that I think he should be rightly of which he should be rightly proud. Awesome. Now, uh, I'll have to remember what our um, usual formalities are. We... we we'd go to cards and letters now, probably, because we've covered most of the most of the news for this episode. But I don't know whether or not, um, since we haven't been on air for three weeks, that we've got any cards and letters. Um, I'll just check that. Have you, have uh, you managed to be to get? To, don't check the mailbox now. <laughs> no, That's there wasn't pre-production. Yeah. You're supposed to do all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, there wasn't. Uh, wasn't too much. Um, no cards and letters. I haven't. I, I'd up. ask our listeners to hold off on the the hate mail that you know. Oh yeah, yeah, we haven't heard for three weeks. You know, right. we, we've made excuses and, uh, and and our promises to to be more regular. So. Um, letters and cards on anything else would be more than welcome. Yeah, no, no, no one, no one sent dirty saying, you know, where, where the heck are you, um, or anything like that. Which is obviously they know us well enough um, to know that something came up and uh, that, that we are regular. Or they, or they, or they just didn't miss us. <laughs> oh, no, I think they do. Poor old, uh, we we've got people driving tractors, uh, going round and round in circles, waiting for us to uh, to come on air. Well, luckily, luckily we've got 112 uh, in the back catalogue. Yeah, exactly. Go back. Some, and... some of them are worth another listen. Exactly. So uh, let's see. Yeah, anything on iTunes? Uh, Barry Cranston. No, Barry Cranston was the last one. Doesn't seem to be anything new on iTunes. But listeners, don't forget that you can send us uh, cards and letters. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know who you'd like to hear us speak to. Um, let us know whether you think we waffle too much or uh, you've got any comments to say um if you do like what we do please jump on your favorite podcasting app uh itunes seems to be the one that most of you uh leave a review on help other people find us um don't forget that if you like the show and would like to you know give us a little bit of support um we we do put this out free but you're welcome to jump on there are links at the end of the show notes uh where you can jump on and become you can either just make a one-off donation or make a ongoing uh contribution to the show in five or ten dollars um a month just to say you know like a subscription think of your magazine uh you know we don't want to put up a paywall but if you like what we do you can uh you know help us to uh keep doing it and maybe even buy beer uh, uh, buy profit a, a beer every now and then uh, now, Prof, have we got any other formalities? No, no, no. That's about it. And um, apart from, I guess, uh, in this particular week with you just coming back from 
Germany and uh, in between Oktoberfest in Brisbane weekends, um, the outro roll out the barrel music is probably never more relevant. Did you did you catch the tune I put in last time, which was the Flieger lead or the Flyer, which is a did did you did you catch that prof or uh, you didn't listen uh, through I to the end? Don't know. I'll look. I'll, I'll pop that in again today because it's very right. apropos. Um, it was a bit of a novelty uh, song. Everyone still associates. Uh, does everyone in Melbourne associate the chicken dance with Oktoberfest prof? I wouldn't think so. You know that. Yeah, I know the song. It's 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 the wedding song. Oh, is it? Yeah. Ah, sort of. okay. We'll see. Never October. never known it to be Oktoberfest, but well, others see, might. Others might. I don't, I don't speak for all Melburnians. Yeah. No, it goes back to to. Uh, Expo in Brisbane back in 1988, when Brisbane came of age, as they like to say, there was an Oktoberfest, or the, the German pavilion had an Oktoberfest tent um, that was designed to be a six-month cap- capturing the spirit of Oktoberfest. And most Brisbaneites, that was their only um, you know, exposure to German culture and Oktoberfest. Um, and one of the songs that the band played was the Chicken Dance, which is a great one to get everybody up and dancing, which is no doubt why it's used at weddings. But ever since then, you mention Oktoberfest to Brisbane, people say the Chicken Dance. Um, but the bands in Oktoberfest um, are the real stars because you've got 6,000 people, densely packed, all drinking, having a good time. But the bands that play, and they play everything from traditional German folk songs through to there's a lot of Robbie Williams anthems where people get up and sing and yeah you know, and yeah part- you haven't got those five drunk idiots down the back corner shouting out Kaysen play Kaysen <laughs> no, no there were a couple of um I'm trying to remember what they were there were a couple of there there were one or two classic Australian songs um or songs that would be identified as being Australian um but. Yeah, you just get this music that is all over the place. And every couple of years, a new novelty song, you know, Macarena-ish song comes up. So there was this Flegally, um, which means The Flyer, and it was just a, a bit of a novelty song, and it still seems to be played. Um, and it's a big one. It's a crowd pleaser at the Oktoberfest here. But um, it, 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 it's just one of those things that'll come. It'll probably have a seven or eight years of popularity and then it'll die out amidst all of the other um, classics. But you get a little bit of Take Me Home Country Road, which gets all of the Germans in. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's just great fun. So this is the, uh, the, the, the very popular Oktoberfest song at the moment. So uh, without any further ado, let's uh, listen to a little bit of Oktoberfest, the Flieger lead. Flieger bin so stark, stark, stark wie ein Tiger und so groß, groß, groß wie eine Giraffe, so hoch. Oh, oh, oh. Und ich spring, spring, spring immer wieder und ich schwimm, schwimm, schwimm zu dir über und ich nimm. And we're out. 